Welcome to the Service Driven Life Podcast. I am your host, Tracy Clark, and I have set up over 4,000 nonprofits and received over $10 million in grant funding. This podcast is designed to highlight community heroes and give tips on nonprofit and service-based business growth. Welcome back, Earth Angels. I am so excited about this season. We have a lineup of powerful women who are really making change in their community. And today is just as special as the last week that you heard from. You should have heard from Purposeful Living last week, which was an absolute dynamic episode. If you didn't listen to that one, go check that out first as well. But today we have Miriam here from 180 Management Group. How are you doing today, Miriam? Tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Hi, Tracy. I'm doing well today. Uh, My name, of course, is Miriam Dix, and I am the founder and owner of 180 Management Group, which is an operations consulting firm. We're based in Greenville, South Carolina. We have been in operation for the last nine years. (laughs) Um, And yes, it's been nine years. And um, we serve the vast majority of our clients are nonprofit organizations, um, but we also will serve religious organizations <laughs> as well as healthcare organizations because that's my background. I came out of healthcare admin before I launched into management consulting. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about that time. There is a lot of individuals that are wanting to either work for their nonprofit organization full time and or um, our, we do have a couple of small businesses as well. So how was that transition? When did you get the idea that you wanted to go into the coaching strategic leadership area here? So actually, I don't know when, I just knew for a long time, I, I had the bug, right? I think if you're an entrepreneur, you've always had the bug. Mm-hmm. You just you got to figure out when the time is right for you to actually execute right, mm-hmm. and move forward on it. But I want to say it was probably around 2014 or so when uh, I was working for um, a large for-profit hospital chain. Um, and I had come out of the consulting industry in the healthcare world already. And a, and a client actually brought me in-house and I was working with them. And I was serving 12 hospitals in four states. And at the time, um, I had young children at home and I was traveling. Mm-hmm. And um, we were, my husband's also pastoring a church. And uh, a lot of his work, it was in the evening. So somebody needed to be home to take these babies to all these extracurricular activities. Mm-hmm. Um, but even more than that, and not necessarily more than that, but in addition to that, I saw the writing on the wall. They were starting to sell off some of the markets that I was working with. Hmm. And so it was an opportune time for me to use the skill set that I had developed as a consultant in the healthcare world, in the healthcare management world, to really um, hone in on those skills and understand what was transferable about what I did and open up shop. So that way I had the flexibility of schedule so I can be home for my family when I need it to, but also still maintain and uh, relevance, if you will, in, in the marketplace. I didn't want to die on the vine. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I didn't want to die on the vine. And so I, I launched uh, 180 Management Group 
in 2014 at the tail end of my full-time employment. So I was doing both and for about a year and then finally just bit the bullet and said, you know what? I just don't think that I can grow the organization the way it needs to be grown if I continue to work full-time for someone else. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not a decision you would take lightly, right? Mm -hmm. If you've been working um, full-time and you get benefits and you have a paycheck that you're used to getting every two weeks Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then you launch out on your own and you have to figure out all the things that your employer was providing and figure out how it is that you're going to replace those things and serve clients. And so, so it was, it was not, um, the transition was not the easiest transition, but when you have that fire in your belly (laughs) for what it is that you believe you're supposed to be doing, then that's what keeps you on the path. Absolutely. Wow. And it's important. Two things stood out. Number one, that you did and in both for two years, for one year, And so, you know, sometimes people want to make that transition um, faster than they're necessarily ready. And I think Mm -hmm. it's important if you're working and you're doing something full time now and doing your nonprofit or doing a um, small business part time. It's important for you to let that thing grow and give it some unpressured (laughs) energy before you just you know, go in full time, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. means now it has a lot more overhead. So I think Mm -hmm. that's important. And I'm glad you shared that time that it took for you to be able to jump all the way in um, on your journey. And then also another word that definitely stood out for me was transferable skills. Mm -hmm. That's an important thing because so Mm -hmm. many times you spend time working for companies and organizations and you're building all these skills and you don't even realize that you are building things that you can get paid potentially a lot more for, but Mm -hmm. sometimes they come so easy for you because they're gifts Mm -hmm. and you just realize, you know what, I can transfer this. If this company is able to do it and able to gain clients in this area, why wouldn't I be able to do this on my own if that is something that I'm interested in doing? So yeah, the transferable skills. So it, it took me a, a while to really understand what those were. Mm-hmm. So when I first launched out uh, with 180 Management Group, my focus was on healthcare consulting. So I was, I thought in the beginning that I was going to serve, you know, physicians, um, physician practices, uh, maybe even um, organizations that provide home care, home health services, some of the ancillary, not necessarily hospital per se, but mm-hmm. some of those ancillary medical services or healthcare services that people, you know, would, would uh, engage in and maybe smaller businesses and things like that. And what I found, um, especially thinking that I was going to do a lot of physician practice work, was that there wasn't enough work in that space for a smaller organization to really get traction. Hmm. Most of those um, physician practice sort of uh, medical facilities, they're looking for larger organizations first and foremost. And secondly, not enough physicians were coming out of the hospital system to be independent, Hmm. right? Remember, a lot of physician offices were were bought up by hospital systems, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I had to really think about longevity. If there's not enough of the target market that I plan to serve, that I would be able to serve, then how am I going to continue in business on my own if I don't make some kind of shift, Hmm. right? So you could have an idea of what it is that you want to do, who you want to serve, who your client is, who your target is. And then when you get out there, realize it's not, that's not what's going to help sustain the the long-term business. And so at that point, you have to figure out what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was now I've spent the last 10, I think it was 15 years at that point, 
and mergers and acquisitions. I would go out and um, really do some due diligence, looking at potential practice acquisitions for a hospital, understand their operations, look at their staff. I mean, I would do everything from IT to, you know, HR, all those things, bring it back, report it. And then after they acquired it, make sure that they were integrated into the system. Well, that gave me a skill set to go in to look at any small business, understand how it functions, provide a strategy on how they could be more successful and then help them make sure that they can implement that. So that was the transferable skill set. But I had to look for it. Like I had to I had to think through I was trained in this area to do this thing like this, right? Mm -hmm. But what does that mean for other organizations, even if they're not in that specific industry? And that's how we got to the operations consulting management consulting piece. Wow, that's interesting. So I hear a big pivot that yes. it was like, you know what, this is in when you start working and doing some things, the thing about it is when you're in that brainstorming phase and when you're thinking about what you're wanting to do and how you want to serve and what your giftings are, things like that. Until you actually start making the moves and connecting with the market and, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. talking to clients and all of these things, all of those things start to sometimes change and you have to be willing. That's one mm -hmm. of the things we learned um, coming out of the pandemic, willing yep. to pivot and to adjust and to see the opportunity in what's going on and the people that are all, that you are able to connect with. You know, exactly. you can have the best idea in the world, but if you're not able to connect with that group, if you're not able to create transformation there, if it's not sustainable for you right. as a nonprofit or business, because a big misconception of the nonprofit space, when some people come in for the first time is that they don't understand the, well, can you bring in income? How do you bring nonprofits are considered businesses. They right. have to bring in revenue right. in the same way. And if they do not bring in revenue as a nonprofit, they slowly <laughs> die, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that is very important. So you always have to kind of be strategizing. I heard a quote the other day that said, um, pain plus reflection equals growth. Mm. That's so good. taking that time to do the things that you know you need to do so that you can really assess. So actually making the steps, making the moves, contacting the funders, getting the no's sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, creating mm -hmm. the groups that maybe didn't turn out, the programs that didn't turn out exactly how you wanted it to turn right. out. But you got some feedback from it. You mm -hmm. saw who did show up. How did they show up virtually or in person and things like that? But then taking that time to assess and make the important changes is really part of that um, growth trajectory. And that's what it sounds like you did with your organization, which is awesome. Yeah. And, and it's building a muscle, mm -hmm. right? So when you come out of your employment arrangement, right? And you're you're launching out to be an executive director or a CEO or a founder of an organization. If you have not been at the helm where you had to make all the decisions, you have to build that muscle. Yeah. And you only build the muscle by exercising. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And exercise can be painful. Oh, yes. <laughs> some days you feel like it, some days you don't. Some okay. days you feel like you're making progress, some days you don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But at the end, if you don't give up, if you stick it out, you will start to see the progress. You'll start to see the muscle building, but, but you don't become a founder just because you started something. Hmm. Mm. Many people launch something and it never goes anywhere. Yeah. Right. And I guess technically you could say, well, I'm a founder. I started it, but if the organization dies, 
what uh, what credit is that to that. you <laughs> right what, what credit what credit is that to you uh-huh. absolutely it takes more than just i filled out paperwork yeah to sit in the seat yeah And all the things that we go through, whether we're shifting, whether we are, you know, having those painful moments, whether we are reflecting on how it is that we can do better the next time, all those things build that muscle. Yeah. And like you said, making those decisions, you know, I remember when, um, when we first got to the position where we were able to begin hiring people and I was just so excited, uh, taking a little bit of background is um, that we've been working with nonprofits in the nonprofit space for 15 years, but I've Mm -hmm. been an entrepreneur since, like you said, you always know. (laughs) So (laughs) I literally was managing a place at the age of 12. I was managing a restaurant, a pizza store, a pizza shop. Like they Mm -hmm. didn't have any idea how old I was. um, (laughs) I started doing hair and that was a business for a while. I was actually doing those little tiny braids, but Mm -hmm. then I also had a daycare for several years. And that was my first experience in the daycare and with consulting that I got an opportunity to hire. And I remember before I before I could hire, I was so excited. I was just like so excited about being able to hire. Oh my gosh, yes, yes. Such a great, oh my goodness. It was so many things that I just did not even know what I didn't know. There were people mm-hmm. who were excited about working and two seconds later, they were, you know, they were showing up. You know what I mean? <laughs> Over it. <laughs> you know, and and then you have times where you have to make decisions where someone may be doing a great job, but there's decisions that may have may need to be made during a pandemic or during different times in growth, where even if they're doing a great job in their ass, it still may not be great for your company at the time because you right. have to make decisions based on numbers and programs and growth for your organization, not just you individually. And you like this person, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And one thing, one thing to think about, or, or or just that you made me think about is the fact that founders in particular, like when you found, you set out to start an organization, it's lonely work. Yeah. Like I remember coming from a team Mm-hmm. I had a community of folks because I was employed by an organization that was already, you know, formed and had this large staff, the whole nine. Right. And so I'm used to working with a team. There are people with me all on, on, uh, throughout the day and throughout the week and the month getting work done. And then you step out and you're by yourself. Yeah. And it's hard to, you know, make that transition. If you're, and you may be an introvert, you may be like that, but at the end of the day, it's hard to do all the work by yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you are excited when you're like, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe I can hire someone now. Yeah. And having to be careful that you're not doing that out of the wrong place. You're doing that because you're lonely, you're tired. You don't want to do it, but you can't afford it. Yeah. Right. Or, or you haven't really thought about what this person is going to do. I know I need the help, but have we mapped out what this person is going to do? Because then you frustrate people and they leave, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, or so, do you even have your training? Do you have your training? Right. So right. People, even if you have it visually in your head, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't have it plain and simple, if they don't understand exactly what they're supposed to be doing and what it looks like to succeed and you're busy, you know, mm-hmm. doing right. the things that the CEO does, right. that becomes a challenge as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So making sure that you are grounded emotionally when you're making decisions so that you aren't making them out of the wrong place in the wrong spirit. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is part of understanding the dynamics of growing into that leader. Yes, absolutely. 
Absolutely. I love it. So let's talk a little bit about what you guys do for the nonprofit and spiritual leaders and things like that. Uh, tell me how you help and how you serve your uh, your clients. So I'll give you a short story about how it came to be that I started working with nonprofits. Now I've been working in church administration probably for uh, as long as I've been married, about 20 plus years. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that, that world, the, the, uh, administrative world or administrative work of churches is not something that's foreign to me. I've been doing that for a while, but in, I think it was during COVID and this is this, I'll, I'll be very transparent when, uh, 2019 came, I had probably the year before had my highest revenue earning year wow. in 2018, 2019, everything crashed hmm. right ahead of the pandemic. Hmm. So when the pandemic came for me as a business owner, I was like, Ooh, I got time. Things are slowing down. I got time to regroup. Mm. I have time to pivot. I have time to figure out what's going to be the next. Mm -hmm. And in that time period, I also embarked on some professional development journey. Right. So, so that's one thing that you should always do. If you are a leader of an organization, whether you founded it or you're just at the helm or whatever the case may be, can get continuing education, continue to develop yourself. So I uh, went on this sort of professional development journey to be a better speaker, a better facilitator and all that sort of thing. And, and during that time, I also recognized that some of the hardest hit um, organizations were nonprofits during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, in part because, and I say this often, and this is no slight to the nonprofit community, nonprofit organizations tend to start as a passion project. Yeah. Someone sees something in the community that needs to be done, needs to be addressed, and no one else is doing it. They pick up um, that mantle, if you will, and say, I'm going to do this because I know it's needed. Mm -hmm. And it's passion. Mm-hmm. It doesn't first start with structure, right? It starts with passion. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is passion will kind of dictate what's happening structurally. Mm -hmm. And when the pandemic hit, passion couldn't, couldn't help <laughs> the, override the, the absence or the lack of fully developed structure mm -hmm. for organizations to continue to provide the service at the level of excellence that they would like to do that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I reached out to our local, uh, I think it was United way. And I said, I have this skill set, and I think it could really help our nonprofit community. And they pulled me right on into the community because many times there aren't a lot of consultants that specifically specialize in operations management. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and when I know that that term might be foreign to a lot of nonprofit leaders, because it's not necessarily innate to the nonprofit world. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about operations consulting, I'm talking about three aspects of how you run your business, how people work together, how people do their work and how that work informs your ability to continuous, continuously develop strategy. Hmm. Okay. So those are three areas I'm talking about people, processes, and planning. 
(laughs) And so that specifically is what I look at for an organization when I come in to help, you know, get them back on the right track. And our goal is transformation. If you were struggling, when we leave, you should see the light, you should have a plan, a blueprint, and you should know where you're going, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I was pulled into that nonprofit community at that time. And since then, the work has been so much more rewarding for me because I know that the organizations that I'm supporting are doing meaningful things. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that when I worked in <clears throat> in the for-profit world, there were some things that, you know, even if you have a skill set, doesn't mean that the work can be rewarding. Yeah. There's some things that you see that you're like, man, that's, I don't know if I like this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I, hmm, mm-hmm. some interesting practices we got going on here. <laughs> um, <laughs> the culture may not be what you would like it to be, whatever the thing is, right? And so having transitioned into the working with nonprofits, there is a sense of fulfillment. It's rewarding because of the work that that they are doing that the leaders of those organizations are doing. So even if I'm not as passionate about your mission, I can be passionate about you. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's your mission. Mm -hmm. My mission is you. Mm -hmm. Your mission is what you're working on, right? And so, so, you know, that's how I transitioned into the whole nonprofit consulting world. And um, what, what really you know, gives me sort of that uh, fire to keep going. It's when I see an organization that was in disarray when I met them, end up having the structure, the systems, the processes, the strategies to get them where they need to go so they can meet mission. And when that light bulb goes off, that is when things just transform um, quickly, right? Sometimes this is a matter of, and I'll say this often too, it's not that people are not um, intelligent or they don't have the the know-how. Sometimes it's just a proximity issue. Hmm. It's not capacity, it's proximity. Hmm. You're so close to the work all the time yeah. that you can't get above the 50,000 50, foot level yeah. to see what needs to be done in a way that's going to make you help you to work smarter, not harder. Mm-hmm. So, right. So it's not, it's not capacity, it's proximity. (laughs) And you need someone that come in from the outside to say, oh, I see what's going on here. If you just move this here, do this, do that. I think you'll be fine. You're like, ah, I needed somebody to, I I needed somebody to see that for me. I needed someone to say that to me. And, and that is what it's all about. Absolutely. That time spending working on your business, not in your business, so to speak. Same thing mm-hmm. for nonprofits. When you're wearing so many hats, sometimes you get stuck into some of the the work that you, that is working in your business, messages and you know, and maybe marketing and all these things that are like daily, daily tasks, mundane tasks that you don't have the time to do that strategic work that the CEO needs to be doing in order for you to really truly see that growth. So mm-hmm. you talked about people planning and what was the other oh, one? Processes. Remember this processes, people planning and processes. Let's talk a little bit about some of the biggest mistakes or biggest adjustments you see made in e- underneath each of those areas. Well, I guess we could start with people. And I know one of the things that you talk about is, you know, creating a life-giving board and creating a dynamic board. And that is a huge area 
mm-hmm. uh, that comes up mm-hmm. <laughs> with mm-hmm. a lot of my clients mm-hmm. is attracting mm-hmm. the right board members, getting yeah. people who are committed, pe- getting people to show up and do things. Yep. And so let's talk a little bit about that. So the board, um, I listened to a lot of podcasts. So I was on a fitness, really wellness journey um, over the last three years. Um, and I would work out a lot. I still do. And I would try to get my, um, sort of keep my ear to the the ground, if you will, listening to podcasts while I'm working out. Right. So they say, couple the, couple the habit, right. <laughs> do something mm-hmm. that you need to do with something that you want to do. <laughs> and so, um, there's this podcast called, uh, nonprofits are messy by Joan Gary. And follow. you follow. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, so she, she talks about boards and things like that. And she, um, said something one time and I wrote it down as a quote from her. It says an amazing board has clarity about its role and is led by someone who creates a culture of peer accountability. Hmm. Now say it again. An amazing board has clarity about its role and is led by someone who creates an, a culture of peer accountability. Hmm. The biggest issues that we see with boards is that they are confused about what their role is and what their responsibility is to the organization. Because not every board is created equal. Yeah, There are different types of boards. Some boards are b- working boards, right? And they are doing some of the work of the organization. Some boards are fundraising boards. Right. And their their main focus is to go out there and find money for the organization. There are other boards who are really governing boards. Right. They're just trying to make governing decisions for the organization in its best interest. Right. And so when you have uh, a board that does not understand what its identity is, it's very hard for that board to be effective. Yeah. Right. The other side of that quote, when she talked about the accountability, I learned this back in the day. What you permit, you promote. So if you have people on your board that are just taking up space, they're not active, they're not participating in discussions, they're not coming to meetings, and they're still board members, what you permit, you promote. So the next time that you bring in more board members, you sort of have this culture of of a lack of productivity. Yeah. And and people are just coming into a culture that already exists Hmm. because it's been okay. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And so making sure that one, you have a, a clear understanding of what your board is going to do for the organization and you shouldn't be flip flopping. <laughs> it's one is, you know, and January is one thing, but by, you know, September is something else. Uh-huh. No, have a clear understanding of what you want that board to accomplish, what kind of board it is. And then two, have a clear uh, structure for what it looks like to one, be onboarded. When I say onboarded, trained to come into that board, to make decisions and understand how the organization works. Mm-hmm. And then two, to make sure that that person knows what their role specifically is within the board. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that makes a difference. People don't want you to waste their time. Yeah. And they don't want to be figuring it out. Right. They want to be trying to figure <laughs> it out. Even how you talk about your organization is important. If you have certain things, like for an example, um, I so serve on one board, Coburn Place is one of the largest and most impactful transitional homes for those who are coming out of domestic violence here in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to us that we are known as a transitional home and not a shelter. So that's right, the right, that right. we need to transition into each of the board members as they're coming on because mm-hmm, sometimes mm-hmm. you get 
kind of put in that category, but we want to make sure we stand out as a completely different experience. It's one of the only experiences mm-hmm. that you're there for two years. It's not a temporary emergent. You have your own door. You have your own lock. It's totally out of the category of a shelter, but generally and in the public eye, they can sometimes a lot be grouped together. So when our right. board members are speaking, we want them to know the proper language mm-hmm. that we would like to use and things like that. So like you said, yes. that's where that onboarding comes into place and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have those written um, policies, procedures, mm-hmm. culture, what yep. your expectations are, that they have that in front of them. And if you find that you have a poor culture on your board, right? There is a way to change that. Let's talk about that. <laughs> right? So, yeah. so culture is what we call systemic. Mm-hmm. It is a part of every behavior, every system, every process, because it's sort of how we think about what the work that we do. That's culture does that. Right. And the only way you can control, uh, you can transform an organization's culture is that you have to do it systematically. Even though culture is systemic, the transformation product project or the transformation process has to be systematic. Mm. Okay. In other words, we have to figure out what parts of the organization, especially talking about this board piece, what is not working and what we need to put in place systematically so that we can begin to make that shift. Right. So is there a policy that's needed? Is there a process that needs to be outlined? Are there people who need to be involved in this that need to have a role in board development or a role in board training? You know, making sure that we're looking at all those things. What reports are we collecting? What data is being collected so that the board can make good decisions? Right. So all those things are systematic right? We're putting in process. We're putting in the people and the strategy into the transforming of the culture of that board. So it doesn't just happen because you get new people. Yeah. I just want to make that clear, right? You don't transform your board because you just got new people. The culture is already there. People just adjust to the culture that's there. Mm -hmm. You have to really be um, uh, deliberate about making those changes to your culture. And you can only do that by really being systematic about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I find when it comes to board members is that beginning phase and when mm-hmm. you actually are getting them onboarded as a board member, the even the even the ease of it and the process. There's yes. um someone said, I, I want to say it was something along of the easier it is for them to come onto the board, the more challenges you might have down the line because you need to make sure that they, you know, that they have been interviewed by multiple board members. It's not just you making the decision that they do understand what's expected of them and are Mm -hmm. able to commit to what's expected Mm -hmm. of them. You Mm -hmm. know, so these are all things that can be done on the front end. And one example, it's not in board, but an example of what you said, creating systems to solve the issues that are coming up. So when I started with the daycare, I remember assuming that people would assume that when you're watching children, you shouldn't have your cell phone out, especially if you're at the park or something. <sighs> that was not that. And, and but I realized that that mm-hmm. wasn't something that was assumed. And so now it became an issue and it became, you know, something I had to tackle. And I realized that, okay, I need to put this into my onboarding material. 
This is mm -hmm. what's permitted. Your mm -hmm. phone needs to be away. Mm -hmm. This is our mm -hmm. emergency mm -hmm. line because mm -hmm. we understand mm -hmm. emergency. So we have an emergency line where someone can obtain you if that's if if the need is there, you know. So I had to yeah. put those policies into place. If people are not showing up to board members, to board meetings, board meetings, mm -hmm. is there a policy in place right. that says what happens if someone hasn't shown up to two or three board meetings and you don't, you know, with no no uh explanation so to explanation speak. Mm -hmm. and what happens if you know I, I was a uh my first board experience um I was working with an organization that was sort of um they would say they were social services I'd say they kind of were sort of healthcare as well because they were billing Medicaid and Medicare but <laughs> I was on this board and I didn't know what I was supposed to do hmm. until I got assignments and then the assignments didn't really add up to me. Like, why, why are we doing this? Um, how is this helping the business, uh, the organization as a whole? Um, we would gloss over things like the financial projections or the financial reports that were coming out. And I'm like, wait, I have questions about this. Why are we not like, how am I a board member? And I feel like I'm just hired help. Yeah. That's not getting paid, mm -hmm. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> No, right. Exactly. right. You're like, making the decisions. <laughs> right. I just feel like you're bringing me in to like, you know, provide some support, like be, a, be again, identity of the board is important to, to just be a working board, which is fine. If that's what the board needs to be as a working board, but no one explained that to me. I just had to figure it to. out. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I had to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And, and it was, it was, um, and, and sometimes it was just a little disheartening. Like this could go so much better. Mm -hmm. This could just be a whole lot smoother if we just sit down and really just map out, iron out some details, put some things in place. Like you said, the process of the policies and, and set some expectations so that we all know who's on first. We yeah. all know what should be happening. If I am going to be a part of a subcommittee, right? Yeah. Um, that the, That committee has an actual purpose that's outlined and their expectations of what they need to bring back to the full board. Like those things matter. Yes, absolutely. And absolutely. if you're looking for quality board members, <laughs> people who can bring something to the table, they're also looking for you to have your thing, your stuff in order, right? Your absolutely. board in order. Mm -hmm. So if you're not getting the type of people on your board that you want to have, it's time for some self-reflection. Absolutely. Are we a board that can actually attract the people that we want to have? That was actually my very next question. I was going to ask you, that is a big challenge that a lot of our nonprofits have is just um, finding good board members, finding active mm -hmm. board mm -hmm. members. Mm -hmm. Is there any tips or anything that you would suggest in that specific area? If you're not getting a lot of um, um, a lot of action or a lot of uh, people who are interested in serving on your board um, when you're asking. One of the things that came up recently as a, a great strategy for uh, looking for board members, one is first, know what kind of board you are so that when you are trying to source these board members, you can um, sell them on it, right? Because <laughs> you need to be able to do that, right? What kind of board are we? And then two, uh, understand what uh, types of roles you need to have at the table. Let's say um, I was doing some work with the... Uh, a program here in South Carolina, I think it's called First Steps, and they provide a lot of um, pre-K, pre infant to pre-K education for children um, before they're getting into grade school. Um, and it's a government, it's sort of government-based with nonprofit 
sort of um, collaboration. And the stipulations for their board was that they had to have a teacher on there. They had to have a parent on there. They had to have um, some other community folks. So there were specific roles mm -hmm. that they needed to fill as part of their board. And so if you know what roles that you have to fill, then you can go and look for those people in areas where they would actually be working. So if there is, for example, let's say you had to have a healthcare worker on your board. Well, as an organization that is Black run <laughs> and, and has, you know, you want leaders and board members to reflect the organization. Well, is there a Black professionals affinity group at the local hospital where you can source some healthcare mm -hmm. administrators who are, who are Black, right? Mm -hmm. Or if your board is diverse, and it doesn't mean racially diverse, you can be diverse in many other ways, then what trade associations might you be able to link up with and post that you have board openings with them or in affinity other affinity groups with other organizations and corporations in their community that might have the type of people that you're looking for to fill your board. So there's a way to do that where it's not just word of mouth, but you are very uh, deliberate about who you need on your board. And then from there, it would dictate where you go to find them. That's I cool. hope that makes some sense. No, that makes total sense to get specific about exactly exactly the type of people that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think about, and I guess this was an easy, <laughs> this may have been an easy find, but um, serving on the board of Coburn Place, they specifically wanted a survivor of domestic violence to serve on the board. Um, not only am I a survivor of domestic violence, mm -hmm. I actually utilized Coburn Place several years ago when I was um, going through my transition from the relationship mm -hmm. that I was in. Mm -hmm. And so I was mm -hmm. also happened to be partnering with them doing some health uh, type things. Uh, I was doing dance therapy there at the time. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so that's when they mentioned, hey, here's a survivor already giving back mm -hmm. doing things, mm -hmm. you know. So again, finding people in the work that they are would be to potentially doing for your organization. Because mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. more than likely they're passionate about uh, your mission as well. Exactly. Because exactly. just them being in that space makes them potentially passionate. And, and let's say you have a working board, right? And you need someone with marketing expertise because you don't have that in-house. Your board serves as sort of your in-house, you know, um, leadership team. Well, then- you need a marketing person, where do marketing people work, right? There and, you go. And go find those people in those organizations um, that that are uh, specific to what you need. So definitely a one way to think about um, approaching filling your board vacancies. Absolutely. One of our nonprofits always thought they put together their board dynamic, so dynamic. Part of their organization has to do with design and fashion and so they have someone who is on a radio station, uh, a radio post personality. So they always have marketing for their events and things like that. Then they have mm -hmm. an actual fashion designer that's on their board, just different people that would be beneficial to the actual organization. So I love yeah. that you have shared some absolute gems, absolute gems. I'm definitely um, going to have you back and we may come back for a live as well. If you want to get all right, I'll be ready. I'll be ready for the live. Awesome. But before you go. If you could just share with everyone how they can reach out to you, um, how they can get more information and support what you're doing. Sure. So um, we're really trying to um, focus our efforts on LinkedIn. So if you want to find 180 Management Group, we have a page on LinkedIn. 
Um, and we, of course, I'm on LinkedIn specifically, right, as an individual, and that's Miriam Perryman Dix, I believe, is out there. And um, we, uh, of course, you can find us there. You can also go to our website, which is 180managementgroup.com, all spelled out. Um, but we also will provide resources um, throughout the year for things that if everyone may not be able to afford consulting, Mm-hmm. but we try to diversify what we do offer so that everyone can get something. Awesome. Right. And so we recently launched um, a couple of masterminds wh- where folks are coming together to talk about effective communication. That one launched, I think two weeks ago. Um, and so, you know, we'll have those types of cohorts um, or masterminds where you can just join for free and you get a couple of weeks together with other like-minded folks who are maybe have, you know, some same similar or similar type issues that you have. And we just kind of flush it out. We walk, we work together on it as a group, as a team. So we try to offer things like that when we can, but definitely go to our website. You can see what services we offer. We offer coaching, consulting, as well as administrative support services. So, right. So when folks don't have the staff in house to do what they need to do, we will help them get their work done through our administrative support, (laughs) management support type services. Right. And so definitely can find us um, on our website and on LinkedIn. Absolutely. Awesome. I will make sure I include her links below as well. And I will tell you this, that can definitely be a strategy. Finding admin support in a company as opposed to hiring someone full time Mm -hmm. is a cost effective strategy and something we Mm -hmm. do with a lot of different aspects of our organization. And I will say that um, we really focus on outsource. Like if you need that outsourcing of some administrative work, um, providing you with an operations leader. Hmm. because that's our focus, right? So you might need someone who's sitting at the helm as your operations manager or director, or even a COO. And we do that for you awesome. because you might not be able to afford someone full-time, mm-hmm. but you can, you can definitely use someone that's part-time or just get some things done on your behalf. So we do that. So awesome. thank you. Well, thanks so much for joining. We will hopefully have you come back on and see you again soon. Thank you so all so much for watching and listening to this podcast. We're so excited to be back. I've absolutely missed you guys. Make sure you listen to the one that aired right before this. And this time or this season, we'll actually be producing podcasts twice per month. So every two weeks, another podcast will be coming out. Thanks so much. And I will catch you all in the next one. Thank you so much for listening. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please feel free to leave a review if there was some type of nugget that you got out of this last episode. And if you are not following us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at Tracy Angelica Clark and our website is clarkandclark.org. If you are interested in starting a nonprofit organization and you don't know where to begin, we have set up over 4,000 nonprofit organizations and we've helped them to receive over $11.5 million in grant funding. So reach out to me and I'll let you know when our next training program starts and I'll get you all the details on how to get started with a nonprofit today. If you have not already downloaded our free nonprofit crash course and checklist, you can do so at clarkandclark.org and I'll see you guys in the next one.